Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Hey family, it's Menachem. Welcome to episode three of Spiritual Gangsters, real people who are killing it. Tonight we have a really interesting guest, a young man by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Klein. I had the opportunity to meet Rabbi Yaakov when I was in Israel traveling there. You heard last week's episode with my friend Gedalia Orbach. I was able to interview Gedalia when I was there, and thank God I was able to interview Yaakov at the same time. Who is Rabbi Yaakov Klein? He's an author, a musician, and an educator devoted to sharing the inner light of Torah through his books, music, video content, and lectures. Yaakov is the author of Sparks from Berdichev and Sunlight of Redemption, both published by Feldheim Publishers. His essay and poems have been featured in print in a variety of Jewish publications, including HUK's Perspective, The Jewish Home, and Mishpacha Magazine, as well as online at Chabad.org, Breslov.org, and Times of Israel. Rabbi Yaakov writes a weekly Torah publication, Thank You Hashem for Shabbos Kodesh, which is widely distributed both in print and online. His popular classes in a wide range of Hasidic and classical Jewish thought, which are housed on SoundCloud.com as well as by YUTorah.org, have been played tens of thousands of times by Jews across the globe, who appreciate the depth, beauty, optimism, and relevance of the material, as well as Rabbi Yaakov's honest and engaging style. Yaakov's highly anticipated third book, The Story of Our Lives, an in-depth elucidation of Rabbi Nachman's famous tale, The Lost Princess, will be in stores over the next few months. It will be accompanied by The Lost Princess Principles, a comprehensive guide for group study, featuring questions for personal reflection, exploration of original Hebrew sources, guided exercises, and focused discussion points. The text will form the basis for The Lost Princess Initiative, an organization devoted to spreading the life-changing messages of this story through premium social media content, events, and other projects designed to enable Jews to encounter the vibrant soul of Judaism. Rabbi Yaakov lives in Jerusalem with his wife Shira and their son, Shmuel Shmalga. It was great to meet this young man, so here it is. Okay, how's it going, everybody? So I'm here with Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Klein in uh, Yerushalayim, uh, which is great. Um, happy I didn't have to grab him in New York. I got to grab him here in Eretz Yisrael. So um, thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for having me on. Okay, so uh, who are you? Who are you? Since beginning with a very deep existential question of who I am, um, without getting too far into the depth, just a little bit of a, of, a, of a background cursory sort of profile is that um, I, was, I was born and raised in Farakwe, New York. I attended Yeshiva Katana of Long Island for elementary school, um, after which I was in Yeshiva Farakwe for high school. I graduated a bit early. I skipped eighth grade. So at 17 years old, right after high school, I came to learn in Eretz Yisrael. And um, at that stage in my life, I was a little bit insecure, both on an emotional level as well as my religious moorings and groundings. I wasn't exactly positively committed um, to religious life, to religious observance. I was still, I was, I was exploring, I was discovering. And the yeshiva that I attended, Shari Tavuna, which is no longer extant, no longer in existence, um, was the perfect place to enable me to find my identity, to find my platform to stand on as an individual. The Rosh Hashiva of 11 is a fascinating individual who bridges the worlds of Long Beach, Lakewood, but at the same time 
as he was developing, he had a very strong openness for Shlomo Kalbach and that world of Hasidus and that world of openness and of support and of love and of a way of communicating the spirit of Judaism in, 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 a, in, a, in a manner that is, uh, is difficult to come by otherwise unless you have that supportive, authoritative individual who's in your life and giving that to you in that way. And so for me and so many others, Rabbi Levin was that person, was that persona who was able to, at the same time, like I mentioned, with halacha and with Gemara, with a normative curriculum, was able to give me a secure platform to stand on and to mold my identity and to give me confidence and, 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 and courage and strength to be able to stand on my own two feet, which was a transformational experience and that I'm forever indebted to him. And those two years were in Shari Tvuna, two years and a bit, after which I learned under Rabbi Shmuel Brazil in Yeshiva Ziva Torah, um, which was a phenomenal experience when the Ruach, the spirit in that, in that yeshiva was completely founded upon Nagina song, Rosh Hashanah Brazil is not only a Rosh Hashiva and a Tamachacham, but a composer as well, very well known for a song, Bulvavi Mishkan Evna and other such compositions. Um, Regesh, I believe, he put out volumes and volumes called Regesh, a very well-known composer. And so the yeshiva was filled with music. When they, they used to make a joke about the yeshivas that um, <clears throat> students wouldn't take a farher, wouldn't take an interview, they would take an audition. When they came to the yeshiva, they, it, was, it was more an audition than a farher. Um, but the yeshiva was filled with music, was filled with energy, with ruach, with spirit. And somewhere along those years, I discovered that Hasidus and the study of Pneumius HaTorah and all of its various elements, whether it's Ramchal, whether it's Rav Dessler, whether it's Rav Hutner, but this ability to perceive our tradition as having something deep to say to us, having something very relevant to say to us, I decided that based on the transformation I had experienced in my life because of my openness to these texts, I decided that this needed to become my mission to bring this to the world to make this accessible to people. And um, there have been ups and downs. It's been a journey over this short period of time in which Baruch Hashem, Chazi Hashem, I've gotten married and I've had a child with Hashem's help, um, Shmuel Shmelka, our, our, our little treasure. But over this period of time, I have merited to publish a book called Sparks from Berdichev which was basically a modern rendering of certain choice teachings from Kedusha Slavi on the parasha each week um, to make them down-to-earth accessible, as well as a second book called Sunlight of Redemption, which is a basic, you know, a, a basic introduction to Breslov thought, Bichlal in general, and in particular, the very first lesson, an in-depth exploration and elucidation of that lesson that really takes the reader through the journey of Rabbi Nachman's tapestry of, of, of thought, what that masterpiece, Lakut Imran, tastes like. Um, and first teaching the first teaching of the Quran. So it's a whole book on, on, on less than a full page, you know, two folio pages. Wow. Um, so, and, and you can do the same of every lesson, and I'm sure right. that uh, someone who's, you know, who's, who's really qualified, I'm just an, an imposter, but a person who's qualified to do such a thing could write thousands of pages on, on, on each, and, and there have been written many hundreds of pages. Each word is, is deeper than life itself. Um, so by that you mean you're an imposter that's speaking to other people that are Yeah, I'm just pretending. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, in, the sen in the sense that there are certainly far more qualified people to do what I'm doing, but for some reason they're not. For some reason there seems to be a lack of people who are stepping up on the scene to really try to transmit these messages. I don't know exactly what the reason is, but kacha, stam. And so I, have, I, fe I felt the need to stand up the Malcolm Shane ish and to say things that I felt needed to, to be said. Okay, awesome. Wow. That's, uh, you know, most people that are worthwhile talking to 
have a, an imposter complex. They're worried about who's, when they're, people are going right. to find out. It's a good sign. Imposter. It's a good sign. It's a good sign. Right. It's a good sign. Okay, good. So, um, so as as we discussed, and as the listeners know, um, the program here is some very directed questions um, to try to get to know you in a way of panemius, right? Mm -hmm. Not to just get to know the details. And we have some details of your life, those that were mentioned in the bio, and then some that you just mentioned now. Um, but it's hard to really capture the, the essence of a person. The essence of anything is really hard to capture. It's right. ethereal. It's, it's not specific. But, um, but we have these questions, and it's been seen to be doing a good job. So mm -hmm. we want to wanna get to know Rabbi Yaakov Klein a little bit, and also maybe to pull out some, some real uh, guidelines or instructions or suggestions about things that other people, that the listeners that I can, uh, you know, learn from you sure. as a person, you know, and, uh, and we can all learn from each other. Okay, so, so if you had to pick a specific place, and I love this one because I like to reiterate the fact that I'm, I'm asking you for, like, the old city of Jerusalem. Everyone lives in the old city of Jerusalem. But I want to know which stone in the old city of Jerusalem mm -hmm. is most special to you. Right. It doesn't have to be the old city. Right. Right. But the point is very, very specific. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, and and why? What's special about that? What makes that space within reality? Right. Mm -hmm. That kind of in sp within spatial reality. Where's your most favorite place and why? So it's an excellent question. <clears throat> I think that it serves its purpose of enabling a personality to become revealed through the spatial, like you mentioned, that spatial, physical, in this world connection that one has to various places. I think that place can mean two things. I think that place can mean a physical location. Place could also mean a circumstance, a sviva. And um, I think that I can provide answers for both of those definitions. Like, in a, in a, in a, in a circumstantial place where I feel most me is, um, is at home, on my couch hmm. with with my wife at the dining room table and my child on the, on playing on the floor. I think that on Shabbos, which is such a gift that we, we, we really need to remind ourselves all the time, all the time, we'll talk about this later, hopefully, but what it looks like in the absence of something, like what it would look like not to have Shabbos in 2020, just on a simple level, hmm. to go through a never-ending cycle of technological obsession and of productivity and it just drive us crazy and mad. Right. Shabbos is such a matana tova, it's a real gift. And, um, you know, so to take a Shabbos and to be able to just be, because that's what Shabbos is about. It's not about doing, it's just about being, right? Kishesha Siyamim, and you know, the six days of the week, Asa Hashem, everything that needed to have been done was done. Shabbos is the time to just, to just be. And so where I feel most me in the sense of being is just to be in my, in my, in my place at home with a wife and a child and all the responsibilities and the mundanity perhaps of that relationship. But that's that, uh, this, that God created humans and not angels. God wants humans in the, in the strongest and the deepest extent of the word to be a human and to sanctify the human experience. And just what to me is most human is just that place of, of being at home with those that I love. And that's a sort of circumstantial definition of, of, of you know, how I would define a favorite place. In, in a more spatial, concrete sort of element, no pun intended, concrete, but you know, you mentioned stones and, 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 and the old city. It sounds cliche, but perhaps we can provide a little bit of a different angle to it. You mentioned not just a place, but a specific place within place, which is so important. For me, it's 
a chair by the coattail, all the way, all the way, all the way by the, by the back wall, which can give me a peripheral, expansive vision, what Chazal call a skira achas, to see the whole, the whole picture, to take it all in. Hmm. And um, I've written about this in the past, but I, every time that I visit the Kotel and I look up at this story wall, that Rav Shlomo Kabach described as, as, as crying, as having six million tears running, running down this wall. When I look at the structure of the wall, and I look at the way in which this wall is composed of various stones, of different shapes, some are very misshapen, but that somehow all fit together to create this concrete, this wall that Chazal tells us can never be destroyed and they've tried. And then I, I, I lower my gaze from the wall to the congregants, to this expanse of Jewish souls, to this diverse gathering of people. In a certain way, I see like a reflection of the wall in the people and the people in the wall. Because it reminds me that we may be broken and we may be dented, and we may be misshapen, but somehow all of the broken, misshapen human beings standing together form this concrete wall. Even beyond that, in a metaphoric sense, form this concrete stained glass window, the way that I like to describe, through which HaKadosh Baruch Hu's light is shining to the world. And so to be able to sit in the back and to take that all in and to appreciate the uniqueness of each and every individual, that very much like a stained glass window that's composed of many different panes of glass that are all that are all bringing to the table a different hue and a different color. If one of those were, were missing, there's a certain potential in the light that would never come to expression. Mm. And so it's only when all of us are together with our affiliations and with our talents and with our abilities and the way that we are, the way that we spend our life, you know, the primary philosophical question, what is one to do? The way that we answer that question in our own lives we are that stained glass window bringing God's light to the world that if one person was missing, if one color was not there, we would be incomplete. And yeah, again, we're broken and we're crying and we're shattered and we feel like we've fallen from the highest place to the lowest place. But when we stand at that wall and see our brokenness reflected in these misshapen stones, it can give us the strength to say, we can all come together and form something beautiful. And for you, it's standing in the back where you can gain a vision of that. I can see the whole thing. I can see Shemayim Ba'aretz. I can see the, you know, the wall and the reflection metaphorically in the people. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So I know you're a man of stories. You told me a few stories before we started. And uh, you've already jumped in the story of Shlomo a little bit. So um, I asked you to think about, because these stories are not, these questions are, you know, you have the questions before. That's, that's the content we discussed there. Right. So, uh, so I gave you an opportunity to really think about it because this is not the kind of question that if you're going to answer most honestly that you're not going to spend some time thinking. If you're a serious person, you're going to spend some time thinking about it. So what story, especially as a man of stories, yeah, um, what's a Which story... Which made it far more difficult. Yeah, right. It's much harder, right? I would have... A, I would have a, I'm also someone that loves stories, you know, and... Uh, Every circumstance reminds me of a story that, uh, um, so to pick one story, it'd, it'd be very, very hard. So I, I can identify with the struggle, sure. yet, yet I'm going to ask you to do it. <laughs> if I had to ask you to just kind of pick one story, it doesn't have to be a story per se. It could also be a saying or a, a proverb that someone said, but that something that gave you a guiding principle that you've been able to kind of put into your life that's driven your life sure. to take you where you are today. So it's interesting you speak about stories because 
like I mentioned, the first two books, the first book was Sparks for Vidichev, the second book was Sunlight of Redemption, um, the first lesson of Likutim Ran, and we're holding at the very, very beginning process of production, meaning the book has already been written, and now it's going to the editor next week, and we have people working on typesetting and design, and ultimately we're, and we'll speak about this more, but ultimately we hope to build an organization about, around this book and the accompanying study guide curriculum that I've developed for the book, which is going to be called The Story of Our Lives, and it's based upon the first story in Sipuri Maisios, which is Rabbi Nachman's book of stories called The Lost Princess. Hmm. Like I described in the preface to the book, which I hope all of your listeners, and you'll get a copy as well, will read. Um, I describe my relationship with this particular story from the time that I was very young, reading the children's edition, which has phenomenal illustrations from David Sears. If you, if you remember that BRI publication, like they nailed it, they just nailed it. Mm. So I had a very strong emotional connection just reading it, it was a beautiful story. But Nachman himself said, after all, you know, what can, what can people yell about my stories? They're just, they're nice stories at the end of the end of the day. Mm. Um, and as I grew, and that story remained ever with me in the back of my mind, I started to realize that it was really, it was really my story. It was really a description of my own ups and downs of my own journey. Now, to those who aren't familiar with the story, very basically, because it's long, and uh, like I mentioned, it's a 500 page book, and there's absolute depth in, in every word and every expression and every symbol. It's unbelievably deep story and relevant story. Very basically, it's the story of a king who has six sons and a daughter. And Rabbi Nachman says that this daughter was very specially beloved to the king, and he spent much time with her, rejoicing in her and with her. And something happens one day that the king gets very, very angry at this daughter. And he utters out of his mouth terrible words that seem to be difficult to understand on a simple level. In the book, we delve into what exactly happened here. But he says, may the no good one take you. May the no good one take you away. She runs to her room, broken, shattered, bewildered, overwhelmed. And in the morning, she's gone. This beloved princess is gone. A viceroy stands up a second in command and he takes it upon his shoulders, this task of searching for and finding the princess out of his love for the king and out of, it, out of his belief in his ability to find her. And he goes on this journey, he passes through deserts, fields and forests, all of which carry tremendous deep symbolism, relevant symbolism without getting into the depth now, just the story. Deserts, fields and forests and he finds a little path to the side which is called a shvil finds a little path to the side. And he thinks to himself, I've explored all these different terrains. Let me just follow this path and see where it takes me. It takes him to a palace with our mighty guards outside the door. And he summons up the courage somehow to push past and to just walk there, even though he thinks that they're gonna stop him. They don't stop him, right? Which is also obviously carries a very relevant lesson about perseverance. And he walks through the palace and he sees that there's a gigantic ball. The king is sitting with his crown on his head in his chair and there's an empty chair beside him. And he sits down in a corner to see how things will develop. They bring in the queen with much pomp and ceremony. Music, very important element is that there's music here. Also, without getting into the symbolism. And immediately he recognizes the queen of this place is the princess. He perceives that this is the place of Lotov. This is the place, this is the epitomization, the embodiment of no good. The queen recognizes him, sees him laying in a corner, comes, she touches him, and he looks up, and they have this exchange of recognitions. Do you recognize me? Yes, I recognize you. Do you recognize me? Yes, I recognize you. Also very important to recognize the identity of the other. 
And he asked her the very foundational question of how can I free you from here? How can I get you out of here? How can I bring you home? To which she responds, she sends him for a full year to yearn, to choose a place, choose a place, and to sit there and to yearn to free me. This is not a physical uh, you know, uh, strategy. This is, we're talking on an ethereal, on a spiritual sense, to be able to yearn for me, to draw, you, to draw me out of here, and to bring me into your life. And he sits there, and part of the instruction is that on the last year, the last day of the year, he cannot eat anything. He spends the whole year doing everything perfectly, and the last day, he's walking to the palace with such a feeling of victory, and he sees an apple tree. And he takes an apple and he can't stop himself. And it's so beautiful. Also very reminiscent, obviously, of the Chedet Sadas, the original sin. And he takes a bite and he falls asleep. After that, he goes through this whole process of grieving and of, and of shame and of guilt. And he carries himself back to the palace and he says, listen, I messed up. You know, can we fix? And she says, go back for another year. The same thing, yearning, different, different, uh, you know, different conditions that she sets for him. And the last day, this time, he can't sleep. And because he can't sleep, I don't want you to drink any wine. So he thinks to himself, okay, I can manage that a whole year, a full year, 12 months, and it's the last day at the very end, and he's about to free her victory, thinking he's going to get a hero's welcome, and he's passing by, and he sees a stream, and the stream should be carrying water, but it's red, and it smells like wine, and he thinks to himself, you know, how, how could this be such a thing? And she's just fascinated by it, and it's okay to look. She never said not to look, and so he walks over to look, and then eventually, in this process of investigation, because he's so curious, he takes a taste and it's wine and he falls asleep for seven years and he gets back up and after that he goes ahead searching for her in deserts to find this that she tells him she tells him that she's been moved to a palace of 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 of, of, uh, of pearls atop a mountain of gold and she goes through deserts and he meets giants and each of the giants says stop looking what you're looking for doesn't exist we know this whole place and they bring all the birds and the animals and the winds ultimately to prove because they're in charge of all of these different elements of the world to prove that nobody's ever seen a mountain of gold and a palace of pearls and he keeps on carrying on with strength to say, I know for certain that it exists. And ultimately, Rabbi Nachman says that he can't exactly outline how he freed her, but Basof he freed her. At the end, he freed her. This story in my own life, and I mentioned ups and downs before, in times of darkness, in times of struggle, and times of failure, many, 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 many failures on many levels, I've been able to dip my bucket into the well of this story to be able to give me the strength that when a person knows something to be certain and a person is clear about an objective and a person can visualize and can taste a feeling even if it's only for a glimmer, if it's only for a moment, to be able to tap into something real, to be able to tap into something that gives a person strength and comfort, somehow we have to surround that with the holy stubbornness to, to believe that I can attain that, that that can become real to me. And even though we go through obstacles and we go through difficulties and failures, real failures, not just like actual failures in our lives, on the very last moment, on the very last day, how disappointing and how frustrating that is to be able somehow to find the strength to stand back up, to be able to realize that we can fix and that the princess Adarabah in the story makes the conditions lighter on him, that there's always another strategy, there's always another way, and we're going to be confronted in our lives with giants. We're going to be confronted with people who look us in the face and tell us that what we're looking for, and the princess represents the spirit, the inwardness, the soulfulness, what we're looking for, Pasha, it doesn't exist. Stop looking. Why can't you just conform? Why can't you just be like everyone else? Be part of the system. Why can't you just learn Gemara like everybody else? What are you, what, what are you looking for in Hasidus? What are you looking for in Panemius? 
What are you looking for? A relationship with Hashem? This is the way to do it. There's nothing else. But the person who's discovered the shvilim and atzad, the person who's tasted something that's individualistic, which is a very important element of the book and the interpretation to connect to the master of the world, not collectively, you know, like a, like a assembly line where everyone looks the same, but this ability to find your own path. Once a person gets connected to that, he's able to consolidate down to the irreducible identity of who he is to hold on to it and to never, ever let go. And that's something that's, you know, obviously I've, I've, I've very much now built at least the short-term future upon this book and the study guide curriculum, which will be coming out in accompaniment to enable schools, yeshiva, seminaries, to begin to analyze the story and with practical exercises to learn the Hebrew text inside. And like I mentioned, we're building a whole organization called the Lost Princess Initiative around this, which is going to be to facilitate these ideas, which are 25 principles culled from the actual book, which ultimately we hope to disseminate on social media, and we hope to disseminate through events and through different uh, projects that are going to fall under the initiative to bring these messages to, uh, to Klai Yisrael, which are super important, I believe. Hmm. Wow. Of this sense of personal identity and self-expression and self-actualization. And then to never let go of that. And the resiliency. To the resilience to overcome. In spite of all the messaging that tells you that it's not, it's exactly not real, right. it's not going to be good, it's, exactly you're right. never going to get it. You know, these, the, 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 you know, the term people use, it's, it's like fluffy. You know, it's like, like Hasidah. It's like, okay, like Kabbalah. It's like, right. but once a person tastes something there, something so relevant and something so deep, and a person experiences a tefillah with kavana. The princess is everything that's qualitative as opposed to quantitative. Our society is very much quantity-based, right? right? Our religious society and secular society as a, as a whole. When you ask a person, you meet a person after a year, and you ask him, what did you do? If a person says, I built you know, this amount of buildings, and this is my portfolio, and I, I got this job, and I made partner, and all these different things, we say, oh, he had a year. But imagine you, built, you, you, know, you meet a person after a year, and you say, no, what do you have to show for yourself? And a person says, I treat my wife better now. Hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a better friend. I have more, let's say religiously, I have more intent in my tefillah. It's like, give me a break. Like, that's called accomplishment? Yes, that's called accomplishment. That's the real accomplishment. It's qualitative. It's ethereal. It's difficult to measure. But at the same time, like everything real in a religious sense is always that which is connected to the spiritual world as opposed to the physical. Quality, which is also associated with time as opposed to space, which is Shabbos, right? Which Shabbos, unlike the Beis HaMikdash, which in Makom, in place, represented the meeting point between God and his nation, Shabbos is that palace in time. Shabbos is the ethereal place, like we mentioned before, of just, of just being, to stop, to put away the tools, to lay down the hammer, and the, you know, in, in, in modern you know, terminology, whatever that looks like in our lives to shut the phones and to to close all the files and to just be mm. that's something that's extremely important wow so you talked about how you encountered struggles and failures and setbacks certainly and still um, do. right all the time we all do so but what was anybody that has any measure of success of self-actualization of of growth there's a sense of hope that comes in there's a sense that things can get better like you're like, you know there's a sense of a vision that you see that that lets you be resilient in, in spite of the of the the voices of the the giants that tell you right. it's not real right. so what was a moment for you in your life that gave you kind of permission to take that leap into that space of hope what let you what what let you know that there was that there was something hopeful about the universe so this is a very a very very good question 
and like all these questions, we could spend you know much time talking about yeah. many things. Very difficult to say one it's story. You know, I, right? how many stories I have to sift through to you know. I mean, <laughs> obviously, it was a plug for the book, and, and it's and it's foundational. So it was, it was a no-brainer. I don't believe you were plugging your book. It was a no-brainer. It was, it was a no-brainer. But um, but aside from that, aside from that, these are these are very broad. These are very deep questions. Was rather very good questions for an interview like this. Like I mentioned, you know, before we began, these are these are excellent, excellent questions. Thank you. And. Um, the answer that I'm going to give is, is going to probably disappoint because it's it's not really necessarily um, imitatable, I, you know, because it's something that I can't really explain. But before I mention it, I want to talk about the challenge that somehow pushed me and drove me to hold on very much like the Viceroy in the story, to hold on to this dream and this element and somehow not despite but because of that challenge to have this defiance to hold on to it you know I, I, like i mentioned i had many challenges in my life perhaps the most fundament, fundamental because they kicked in at a, at, a, at a very young age um was a very very severe experience with bullying very severe mm. um i'm a sensitive soul by nature so you might have been been able to tell um, you know, my brother, but we have six sisters, which is also traumatic in and of itself. Right. Um, you know, I love, right. But, um, so it had much more of an effect on me to experience people day in and day out kids making you feel like, like garbage, like total garbage. I mean, I would go home ripped apart, ripped mm-hmm. into shreds, bawling. And it's something that no kid should experience, but it's something that happens. And, um, you know, people who are not parents can easily write, like, bullying, oh, yeah, bullying, kids are kids. But when you're a parent and you either have to experience such a thing or can enter the experience of someone who's gone through that, to think of other kids, right? We know what it's like, right? right. To think of that, of what that would be like, and I bless us all that we should ever know from such a thing. It's it's devastating. In a space where you can't, there's no adult to protect you. There's no, right, there's no, there's no way of protecting. Right. And everything you do makes it worse. Like if you get involved, right, you don't know what to do. What's right. the proper way? How do you handle it? What to do? And a thousand strategies to get around and... Yeah. Very, very, very difficult. Very difficult. So I went through that. Um, without going into the, too much of the, of the details, and this is an institution that I didn't mention before, but I was in another school and I switched out of that school because of this. I don't want to mention the name, um, but I was bullied by a Rebbe. I was bullied by a teacher. Mm. Without getting into the into into that experience, um, but any shred of self worth that I had left after being bullied by the kids, you know, to, to 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 be publicly humiliated in a way that was actually not founded on, uh, on 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 something that was true. I mean, I was blamed for something that somebody else did, and very visibly berated in in, in front of a very wide uh, number of students, and this was something that tore me apart. Hmm. But I mentioned before there was some element that I had probably from my parents and again it's difficult to put my finger on so i apologize that it's not it's not imitatable but i think that all of us if we search deep enough can find this like i i i had at the very core of my being belief in some shred of worth and some shred of value that even though it was being accosted it was being attacked from the outside somehow i had within me the belief that if i search deep enough it's there and adorable, like I mentioned, not be, not despite, but because of all the opposition, I have to make it my life's mission to stand up strong, to be defiant, to never give in, to never give up, and to and, and, and somehow to hold on to that and to 
allow that to come to expression so that one day, you know, hopefully sitting on the top one day, I can look back and I can say, you know something, this was all part of a process. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I had a dream and I believed in it and I held onto it, which again is one of the reasons that I think that the story of, of, of the lost princess, the story of our lives so much resonated with me and has become such a part of, of, of my worldview and my inner worldview. You know, the Ishbitzer, the, the Holy Meashi Loach, describes Nishamos, souls that are rooted in the Davidic dynasty, souls that come from David Amalek, that come from Yehuda. And he says something about these souls that they'll, they'll go through trauma, they'll go through addiction, they'll go through pain of rock bottom, what that feels like, hopelessness, the end, the end. But these souls somehow never give up. They never give up. Somehow. He, he doesn't say why, doesn't explain it, but I've always felt that I, I have that kind of soul. And I think that many people in our generation who struggle with all of the, you know, this is not an addiction talk, but I know that that's your thing, with all of the permissiveness and the access that we have to so many things that, be, that can quickly spiral out of control, I think that those same souls that fall and fail, if they'll give themselves the opportunity either by virtue of some inner work that they do, or if they're given the opportunity by someone else who believes in them, that if they can hold onto that little seed and look themselves in the mirror through their tear-filled eyes and believe somehow to dig deep and say, after it all, I believe that I have value. I believe that I have value. Even though all of the other signs, both within and without, are pointing me in a direction to say that you have nothing to bring to the table, if we can hold onto, all we need is a shred. But if we hold onto that, then we can push push, push forth, and somehow manage to, again, not despite, but because of all the opposition, to stand up and and to stand strong. How to get that self-value is a very difficult thing, and I I understand that this is something that people struggle very mightily with. And again, there are times in my life that I have tremendous self-doubt, like like overwhelming and debilitating self-doubt, but somehow, somehow, I'm able to look myself in the face and say, I believe that there's a point that lies beyond the failure, beyond the struggle. That if I hold onto it and I'm defiant and it takes what Rabbi Nachman calls Azus to Kedusha, holy stubbornness, not to give up, not to give in, to hold onto that value that each and every human being has and to to run with it and to run with it and to push back against everything else. And this is a running theme from the time that I'm very young, Adayom, until today. When I experience these difficulties, I, I go back into the place of the, the just very simple belief that I have something to bring to the table, even though all of the lights may be out and the sun may have set and the clouds may you know, be, be, be blinding me, I feel that I have something. I feel that I have something because on a very simple level, God is giving me life. And if God is giving me life, I mentioned in the show that we had a few minutes ago that every time we breathe in, God breathes out. Which means that it's not like, you know, the, the clockmaker theory, which is a theological theory that God just like set up the world and we're functioning, nor are we plugged into outlets. Every single moment of our lives at our worst, God is pumping existence into us because he believes that we can fix, because he believes that it's worth it. It's really worth it. If we can have all the scientists, all the geniuses from the beginning of the world to now, they couldn't together with their collective intellect and knowledge create a mosquito. They couldn't. A mosquito. Now think about a human being. What kind of intelligence needs to be pumped into the human who has emotions, who has the ability to love and to be loved, the, the, the ability to produce, the ability to think and to emote. The human being is a phenomenal creature. I always say that it's more, pro- it's more proper for the animals in the zoo to come and look at us than for us to go and look at animals. We're, we're far more wondrous. We're far more amazing. And so the human being at his worst, when all he wants to do is lie in bed and pull the covers over his face and he feels like he has no friends and he has no hope and he has, no, he, he has nothing to offer. By connecting to that point of consciousness, 
that God is consciously pumping us with life every moment, then if I'm breathing in, then I have something then to breathe out to the world. I have something to share. I have something to give. I have value. I have value. And even if it's only a kernel of value, if I hold on to that and I have the holy stubbornness and the defiance of this Davidic soul to stand up and to push forward, I think that somehow that, uh, you know, that, 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 that could be somehow a method of, of maintaining that anchoring, right, in a core identity of value. So it's, a, it's an interesting. First of all, it's two things that I would want to say. First of all, when we were developing these questions, we spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I have to say that my association was that that question was going to be, for most people, a description of something inspiring that happened to them. But, right. But, but I have to tell you that nearly every single person that's answered those, that question has come from the same angle. Really? Right, which is, which is remarkably interesting and not surprising at all. Right. Right, which is really like when they encountered a certain measure of suffering, then maybe their deepest suffering, right. is when that gave them their permission to have hope, which is such a, Absolutely. Such a remarkable thing. I mean, from, in so many ways. Right? Anybody doing the daf knows that the Jewish day starts at night. Right. It's a very <laughs> Jewish idea. Right, right. So uh, the other thing that you kind of segued to, which is kind of our next thing, and now kind of the next, the next few questions are really practically oriented, mm -hmm. really just giving people practical advice is like, what, 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 what's like a habit? If I had to ask you to think about one habit, maybe something that doesn't have to be a secret. Mm -hmm. It can be, but it doesn't have to be, but something that not everybody knows about, you know, something that you do that's kind of your personal thing and that you feel, you know, at face value might not seem, doesn't have to necessarily seem like that's going to be the, you know, the uh, definer of success or the going to generate success. But you feel like looking back in retrospect, like, you know, doing this was really important for me. That really was helpful for me. That helped me to either overcome challenges or, or not, or just manifest dreams. Another great question, which I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer in two ways. One with something that's very practical and makes total sense, and one which ties back into this whole theological approach of being and quality as opposed to doing and quantity. Um, the first thing, again, that works for me, like I, I, I very rarely give advice to people because every person has their own thing, and who am I to say that what worked for me will work for someone else, right. but live Afshar, it might. Um, my study schedule has always been for years and years now very very incremental in a diverse uh, 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 in a diverse range of subjects mm -hmm. so I'll have piled up on my table 15 svarim and I'll only be learning a few lines from each every day mm -hmm. but I found that every day slowly but surely as the days and the weeks and the months and the years accumulate you cover a massive amount which again I haven't I've covered a tiny amount but hopefully I'm on a trajectory to see Torah in the way that um, that, that, that over time, with consistency, doing a small amount every day, it really does add up. So that's something that I found works for me just on a scholastic, very practical level. Tying back into what we were talking about before, and this is something that uh, not many people know about, and which I'll probably have to change now. <laughs> I'll probably have to do something else. Um, but it's, it's, it's been very important to me to try to find modes of Avodah Hashem that are qualitative in the sense that can't be measured, 
most people won't pack you on the back for, aren't seen as accomplishments, because that's my whole thing. So my whole thing is, is, is you know, the focus, like I mentioned before, of the person after a whole year who works on themselves, that that should be something of value, that we need to put more kavana into tefillah. How many people talk about tefillah? Everyone talks about learning, 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 you know, sima shas, which is the most beautiful thing in the world about shas, but again, it's a very, it's, it's a very quantitative aspect, right, of our religion, and there are qualitative things that are much more difficult to be measured, but the sense of being able to have kavana in tefillah, yira shamayim, for example, hispodidus, all of these things that can't be measured, that nobody will give you an award for in school, right? Nobody will give you, there are no davening awards, right, as there are for learning awards, um, and certainly not respected in the same way, and perhaps even relegated to a, a lower level, um, which is which is the opposite of the truth, because the Gemara in Bracha says, Ezu avoda, right, or a davar says, Ome beruma shal olam, something that stands at the very, very, very apex of the world, a pinnacle of existence, and that people are mezalzalbehem, the people ridicule, the people belittle, and the Omer Rashi says is tefillah. Right? Prayer is something that's ethereal. Prayer is something that's a real relationship. And so in this campaign, it is a more recent thing, although it's been on my list for, for quite some time, is that I tried to go to the mikveh every morning. By Hasidim, this is a given, so it's not a surprise. By Hasidim, this is, you know, this is just the way that they're brought up, that every day, Hasidim, this is part of their Avodah Hashem, before Shachras, they go to the mikveh, they have a coffee in Israel, they have a cigarette, and they, and they dab, and that's like part of the routine. But for me, this was a big Avodah, because... First of all, before doing a podcast, I'll be heard by the whole world. No one knows about it, right? And as I said again, I'll have to pick something else now. Um, but it's also something that is difficult to chart a linear line between that action and some practical success, right, in your day. Like, a person could go ahead and daven three times a day with a minion, which is our most orthodox Jewish man, at least, you know, mine. Uh, a woman could keep all the, you know, the halachas of family purity, as, as, as you know, in, in addition to being ready for Shabbos and Hamalakas Neiris, and to raise the children properly, and everything that is involved in a woman's Avodah Hashem. And at the same time, a person can be perhaps out of touch with a spirit of tahara, with a spirit of kedusha, that is something that is, again, ethereal, difficult to measure, but at the same time informs all of the person's avodah Hashem and all the different means and all the different modes. And so I found that, again, you know, can I clearly say that anything that I'm managing to do, you know, that, that's successful in my day is a clear result of having gone to the mikvah? No way. But going to this mikvah, which is this ritual bath of purity, which over here is not a very pleasant experience. You know, you go to the Vishnu's mikvah, it's like, we use derogatory uh, imagery, but, uh, you know, by the Hasidim, they say the mikvah is more luxury than soup without getting into the, the details of what that means. But, you know, but it's not very pleasant, but at the same time, something that you do, and it's something that no one will pat you on the back for. It's something that is not necessarily a obligation, although that's up for discussion, it's not necessarily an obligation. But somehow I'm able to feel that that little action and the half hour that it takes, and it's it's an obligation, you know, undress, dress, get out, get in, pay, right? It, it, it also requires, um, you know, a, a, a commitment, a, a financial commitment. But somehow I'm able to perceive that there's something different about my teaching. And there's something different about my writing. There's something different about my, my communications with others and ultimately my, communi my communication with God and tefillah and, and, you know, my experience of, of, of the human experience of my, you know, my, my spousal relationship and my parenting. Somehow there's, there's a different element of tarot. Like it really did change things for me. Mm. Um, and so it's something that I, I really advise. I really do advise if you can, if it's possible. Again, it's more for men than for women. They have their own mikvah experience. But 
it's really something that can inject your day with that ethereal, qualitative aspect of tahara, of kedusha, of something that you can't um, mark off on a checklist that will be seen by people. You won't, again, get an award. You won't be seen as a Talmud Chacham. It just, the biggest schlepper in town can go to the mikvah. The Tehillim Zagra, where they used to say, you know, a person sitting in the back of shul saying Tehillim, a simple Jew, but, it's, but, but there's something else there, which is, which is really what I'm going for. Hmm. So I'm sure you have many relationships in your life, but if you had to pick one thing about one relationship that makes that relationship awesome, and then like what you do to foster that thing in that relationship, sure. what would that be? I, th I think that there is a general approach that I take to all relationships that obviously becomes more acute in closer relationships, like a spousal relationship, a parental relationship. Obviously those relationships that are close to us are far more, you know, are, 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 there's, far, there's far more weighing on them and there's far more supporting them. So it's obviously accentuated in those, in those relationships without getting too particular, you know, and too private and personal. But there's a general approach that's also very much described in the story of our lives in that book, which I'm sure some will be coming out over the next couple of months, which is a different perspective on gratitude, different perspective on being grateful for things. It struck me as I was learning, as I was exploring, as I was teaching, really, I was in the middle of teaching something, and all of a sudden, like, it just hit me. And later, in a conversation with my wife, like, she, you know, she brought it out a little bit more, which she always does, um, is that in a certain way, gratitude can be defined as preserving in the present the feeling of lack that was experienced in the past toward this item, toward this thing. Mm. In a certain way, gratitude is like, yeah, I'm grateful for something. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, gratitude. But in a far deeper sense under the hood, what it means that we're grateful for something means that we're still able to tap into the experience of not having that thing. Mm. Because in a crazy way, having everything, whatever that means, intellectually, emotionally, financially, spiritually, is still lacking something. What it's lacking is the experience of lack. That's also something. Hmm. Sometimes we want everything, but we forget that there's a beauty in a broken-hearted sort of way, but there's an experience that can be tapped into when a person doesn't have something that may then be lacking when a person has everything. Right. And so... My definition and the way that I try to approach gratitude and the way that I try to foster it, like I'll explain, is to tap back into what it felt like not to have, even while I have. Hmm. The way that Rav Shlomo, the way that the tzaddik, you know, the, the Hasidic masters described it is to yearn for a person even while they stand right next to you. Hmm. The way that I put it in the story. Like sometimes we miss when everything's going so well, we miss what it was like. What it was like. We miss that element and, there, yeah. and therefore it becomes shikra. Therefore it right. becomes something that we're used to. It becomes right. commonplace Decades. and we lose that gratitude, right. right? And the way that I put it in the story of our lives is that we, we, we you know, Mirza Hashem, everybody who's looking for their spouse should find their zivag and their shidduch, the kar of mamish, that we need to get married, right? In this literal sense of the word, but in life, we need to be married to life. We need to have the mundane obligations of what it means to live life as a functional human being, to be married. But even after we get married, we can't stop being engaged. Hmm. We can't stop maintaining that feeling, that euphoric feeling of engagement, which very much is founded upon the experience of lack because a person was yearning for their soulmate. A person felt lonely. A person had that experience of lack. A person who was yearning to have children, couldn't have children, and they went to all the doctors and the treatments, and then they have a child. 
to be able to continually daily tap back in and it's a scary space to be in what was it like when i didn't have this person and even what would it be like i'll tip talk fellow self that a person shouldn't try to but what, what would it be like not to have this person and you're saying gratitude is the expression or the ability to tap into that in a very powerful gratitude way. is the result of that the result of going in to a, to a place of a lack both in the past and what it would feel like theoretically in the future to miss something right. fosters gratitude in the sense that it reminds a person just what this thing means to me. Wow. And it's, it's, a very simple, it's, it's a very simple idea, but I think that many people like they gloss over it. Like, I don't we, think that's a simple know, idea. That's okay, I mean, cool. I mean it, it's, in, a certain, yeah, in a certain way, it's a deep it's, idea, but in, but, in, but in a certain way, I think that it's very sensible. It makes sense. Yeah. Meaning, this is what gratitude is. Right. And then when, we're, when, when we yearn for our people, when we yearn for our wives, when we yearn for our husbands, we yearn for our children, and we yearn for our friends in our community, like we did were we not to have them, Right. So then, we then we appreciate them. Then we value them. Then we we yearn for them while we stand next to them. And so, it's something that I try to do. Like it's, it's wow. it, you know even in the worst moments, even in like the worst. The tikkun, the tikkun for decadence, is the gratitude because it's how we don't take those things for, for granted. granted. Yeah. Yeah. To That's enter right. back into the space of lack, and and it's something that I literally try to do. Like I, wow. I actually do it consciously. It's an exercise. Like, if 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 a person, okay, you know, Baruch Hashem, Rosh Hashanah, is is you know is wonderful, but. As, as things happen in a spousal relationship, there are, there are tense moments, right? right? A parent and a child, there are tense moments. Relationships with people, there are tense moments. And the way that I describe it is, can you, can you for a moment take a break and stand under the chuppah in the middle of a, a spat, in the middle of a disagreement? Right. Can, can, can you tap back into that euphoric feeling that many people who sink into the mundane experience of marriage, like they mock and they belittle, oh, you know, the Sheva Brach is like the chassan gets up and speak, like what does he know about marriage? You know what? He knows a lot about marriage. He knows more about marriage than in a certain way you do because you forgot it, but he still is holding on to engagement that you lost along the way, which is also the loss of the princess. So the loss of the meaning and the excitement and the vitality and the vibrancy and the passion and the meaning that life should have, not just in a relationship, but all of life. In our Yiddishkeit, in our Bodes Hashem, how many people are married to Hashem? We dab and we learn, we, which is like taking out, the, you know, taking out the garbage, getting groceries. We live life of, of marriage. But are we engaged? Or have we lost touch with the spirit of Rabbi Hashem? Do we yearn for it while we have it? Do we yearn for Shabbos? Do we look forward to these things? Do these things matter to us? And the way to re-experience it again is to enter into that mind space of like, what would it look like if all of a sudden everything was taken away? Well, what would that be? So I'm gonna I'm gonna combine the last two questions because we're not gonna have time. Sure. We're running short on time. I hope no one. Uh, oh, I just realized. Okay, we're, we're somewhat short on time, but it's worthwhile to to combine the two, the last two questions, sure. which are like a mantra in practice that keeps you grounded. And also if you want to mix in as well or answer one or the other, however you want to take it, but specific steps that you take to recharge. Those two questions are very much interconnected. Yeah, I think they're, I think they're very similar. Yeah. I think they're very similar. Um, so with the last couple of minutes, I, I'd like to speak about a concept from Rabbi Nachman that I try to I try to implement in my life because I think that it's super foundational and important. Rabbi Nachman Torah Vav in the sixth lesson of the Kutimran, Rabbi Nachman talks about a pasuk in Yecheskel, a verse from Yecheskel the prophet, who describes the angels as running and returning. In Hebrew, it's called Uratzo Veshov. It's running and returning, going and coming back. And Rabbi Nachman, 
implements a paradigm shift in the way that we ordinarily think of spiritual success because ordinarily if a person is asked what success on Rosh Hashem, it's the Aliyah, which, what, which would be called the running, right? The approaching God, the openness, the feeling, the clarity. Ah, we all know what that feels like, right? And a, a spiritual high moment, that's called Avodah Hashem. The low times, the times that we're in a cloud, that we feel numb, that we feel broken, that we made a mistake, that we failed, that we feel stuck, all of the, those times, that's, that's like, I'm out of it. That's, you know, we call that burnt out, like in yeshiva parlance. It's like, you know, it's, it's like this excuse of like, I'm just on a little vacation. Bein man and bein starim. It's not, it's not part of the game. Rabbi Nachman says, no, 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 no. Avodah Hashem is both ratzo, it's both running, but it's also shov. It's also those periods of returning. And this affected me so deeply because all of a sudden it contextualized my whole life as a Buddhist Hashem. Not just the great moments, not just the moments that are bright and when the sun is shining and, and you know, and, and, and the menorahs on the eighth night and everything is lit up. But even those times that I feel distant and removed and, 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 and in guilt and shame, all of those, those feelings, that religious experience of being distant from God, of being out of congruence with our values, there's an avoda there too. There's an avoda there too. And I think that there's shove in a religious sense. All of us know what that means, right? When we're not living up to our standards, right? In whatever sense of the term. But I think that there's a shove in an emotional sense and, in a, sh- and a shove in an intellectual sense because like my father always likes to say, you know, he says that the surest sign of death on an EKG monitor is when the line is flat. Hmm. When the line is going up and down, that's life. That's really what life is. Ritzalika Cohen says that Moshe Rabbeinu toward the end of his life says, Kine, anochi holich lamus. I'm going to die. Why? Because the beginning of the Pasuk, Moshe says that I can no longer go out and come in. Sazrat the definition of life is going out and coming in. Is the sun setting and the sun rising? Is, is the moon shrinking and the moon coming back to life? Which is HaChodesh HaZalachem and Exodus Parashah. Klal Yisrael count after the moon because we're a collective nation of moon people. We have our ups and downs. We have experienced redemption. We've experienced exile and Emirates Hashem will be redeemed again. We know what that feels like. That's human. That's life. To be up and down. Rabbi Akiva knows how to be Nichnas V'yotze to the Paradis. Right? He knows how to go in and come out. Ratz Vishov. That story is about yes. four great masters that three of which were not successful at, at achieving these higher states of entering the, the pardes, the right. inner world of Torah. And right. Akiva was capable of doing well, The only one who was successful. And be, successful and in the sense that he, how to come he didn't lose himself. Right. right. Others were successful in the sense that they got there, but some lost their level, some lost their minds, exactly some lost right. Their, right, their lives. Exactly right? right. But he was able to go and stay normal, so to speak. Right. He was able to be normal. This was, the, this was Rabbi Kiva's success, is that it wasn't nichnas v'yotze, that yotze, the fact that he left, is an expression of his success, but it's the secret to his success. Mm. Because he was nichnas, but he also knew the secret of yotze. Mm. He also knew what that, what that means, to be a human being, to be a struggling, functioning failing and succeeding and persevering ultimately he knew what it meant to be a human being hmm. that was Rabbi Kiva. and so Rabbi Nachman describes that in the place of Shov there are avodas which means to somehow find God in that place of obscurity on the level that you are currently holding by so that means that if a person for example Yeshiva Bachar a person is learning three Siddharma day and he's in a place of show he's in a place where it's just he has no cheshik he has no desire to learn he has no desire to study he's just not into it Rabbi Nachman says don't give up completely right like Rabbi Yisachar friend just famously said with the Siyam Hashanah don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good mm. right which is very very deep Rabbi Nachman said it 200 years earlier where he says Abyssal is Eichet in Yiddish a little bit is also good says Rabbi Nachman find something in that place find a method of connection even there find a touchstone of reality that in that place of brokenness and of obscurity and of darkness 
You can find an avoda if it means taking an English book and reading it, reading a, a, a novel of a gadol, right? Going to the kotel, finding some way to be loose enough with your life that you can accommodate those down points without completely falling apart. And so many times in my own life, like when I feel that I get overwhelmed either by the amount that, you know, is, is on my plate to do. Mark Hashem, you know, I, I also write the uh, Thank You Hashem for Shabbos Kodesh newsletter. I don't know if you've seen this, it's printed out in, in a few um, communities in, in Muncie in the five towns, sent that to a few thousand people every week. And, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a real obligation that's on my plate in addition to, to speaking, in addition to my own learning, in addition to being a, a husband and a father. So sometimes a person gets overwhelmed and sometimes like you don't have cheshek to write and you don't have cheshek to do anything. And you're just, you're not in it. You're, you, don't, you, don't, you don't feel that connection that you should be feeling. I always try to connect myself to this Torah of Rabbi Nachman to know how can I find a place in this place of Shov? How can I find an Avoda here? How can I take it easy, but not easy to the point that I'm out of it, but to the point that I can maintain a connection and know that this is normal, this is okay, this is healthy, this is part of what it looks like to be a full servant of God will reiterate, God did not give the Torah to angels, he gave the Torah to you and me, to human beings. God wants Dafka specifically the fullness of the human experience to be sanctified. And in order to be a human, we have to live all, all ultimately in 2009, in, in 2020 now, right? To be, to, to be presented with the extent of human decadency, right? And to, to be presented with the, with the extent of, of human failing and human faltering, but at the same time to be able from that place to stand up and to say, there's no part of my life that God's light doesn't shine. Doesn't, shine, doesn't reach. There's no part of my life that God's light doesn't reach to illuminate even the most mundane and even the most lowly. There's nothing. There's nothing. Everything can be elevated. There's connection to be found everywhere. That takes us right back to the beginning. Yes. Which is remarkable to the uh, to the back of the Kotel. Yeah. Looking at that picture, looking at the broader picture, seeing That's what it is. the ups and the downs, the broken stones. Exactly that was wonderful. Right. Thank you so much, Rabbi Yaakov. We really appreciate it. Okay. It was wonderful. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place New York, and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tsipora Basravaron. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky and produced by Chaim Kohn, with editing by Eitan Korenblum and our trusted assistant to the regional co-host, Shmaya Hanekman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback and questions. So please feel free to email us at consciously62 at gmail.com or on our Instagram and Facebook pages.